Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST site, my own website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from my website, leongetler.com. I'm Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 40 in our series for 2022, and today's date is Friday, November the 4th. First, I'll be talking to Martin Cregan, Managing Director, Citrix Australia New Zealand, about cybersecurity budgets. And I'll be talking to Rabobank economist Michael Avery about the impact of Xi Jinping's continued rule over China's economy. But now let's talk to Martin Cregan. Martin, the Optus hack has highlighted the importance of cybersecurity. What's your position on this? Oh, I think uh, I think all of us really. When I say all of us, I think uh, leaders in enterprise organizations, small to medium businesses, what I call mid-tier uh, enterprise organizations, really have to remember that we always have to be on, and we always have to be diligent in regards to cybersecurity and what's happening in our environment. If if you think about you know what has happened with that Optus data breach, you know, I think it's a really important reminder of the vigilance that businesses need to play on securing sensitive information. And, and to be honest, I really feel for Optus and its customers and understand you know, how, how concerned everybody is. But at the same time, it's a, a timely reminder that we, we have to make sure that we're being, being vigilant in regards to our, our systems, our processes, and our tools and keeping our, our corporations, our data, and our applications secure. I was actually going through this the other day when I was uh, going through my Foxtel account and I realized that, my God, this company is getting so much data on me and this is scary. And it got me thinking that maybe this Optus hack is just the tip of the ice. Well, well I think two things really from my perspective on this. It, number one is I, I do think that the vigilance or the awareness of what can happen and, and the, the sincere, uh, the seriousness of, I should say, of the of these breaches, really come to the fore when we see something that's happened uh, like Optus. But almost every company 
that we deal with or every interaction that we have, whether it's, you know, our, our health insurance companies or whether it's our car insurance companies or um, whether it's uh, us doing some online shopping and we're entering our details online and, and, and you know, buying something online from Amazon or uh, one of the other large retailers. Um, every single time we take that action, we are exposing ourselves to a potential threat. And I think that's why, you know, I think there's two aspects to making sure that we consistently are putting ourselves in the best position to be protected. And I think the first action is is for, you know, the corporations, uh, the, the companies that have the online retailing shops, uh, as well as yourself, to make sure you have the tools or the tech to protect yourself. But I think the other really big factor that a lot of folks a lot of enterprises, a lot of companies and corporations forget is the education factor. You know, here at Citrix, as an example, we are consistently sending out reminders and education and ed training videos, et cetera, on phishing or on cybersecurity and uh, safe practices and tips to be safe. And the reason why we're doing that is, you know, Leon, our, our, our world, our tech world, our work world and even our personal world is getting more and more complex. And so we're using these things called mobile phones that have, you know, more computing power than the first space shuttle. We're 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 using computers on a day-to-day -day basis. We're connecting to all different systems, various different organizations. We're working now from multiple places. So people are, are enjoying hybrid or remote work and they're working from home or they're working from the cafe down the road or they're working in the office. And all of that just makes what we're doing or what uh, systems we're accessing or really makes the job for, I guess, our, our cybersecurity teams even more complex and harder. So I think that a big piece or a big factor in all of us staying safe is, yes, we need the tech, we need the tools, we need the processes, we need those systems, but we also need the education. So it's a really big and important piece for uh, all of us to make sure that we're taking the time to read those articles, to get those safety tips, make sure that we're complying with um, the rules and regulations that our, our IT teams and security teams are sending out. One of the one of the issues I think is that a lot of these corporations now have remote workers. So they're working you know, from different locations. Would that affect the cybersecurity issue? Well, it, 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 it makes it more complex. So uh, I was smiling when you said that, Leon, because uh, that's what Citrix does. Citrix enables remote or hybrid work. And, and in fact, Citrix is the world leader in providing secure access to your data and applications from any location across any device, any platform. Um, so we take pride in being able to give uh, remote workers access to the applications they need to be productive and do that in a secure manner, as well as making sure that we're securing the data that they're accessing along with it through our platform. But you're 100% correct that it's definitely more complex, and it makes it harder for IT managers or um, you know chief information security officers to have a secure environment when their workers are working from anywhere. And on, on, on any device, we, we've seen in a, a proliferation over the last couple of years um, as COVID hit and everybody started going remote on bring your own device to work. And so with uh, multiple devices out there uh, and devices that may not have been tested on the corporate network, as an example, as well as coming in and, and accessing the network from a Wi-Fi connection or a connection that may not be corporate secured or corporate checked, it just increases the complexity that IT managers have to deal with. And, and that, that is a big struggle for them. But I think uh, overall, they're, they're trying to, to do a, a good job. And I will say, um, we just did a, a survey 
uh, of uh, 250 IT leaders in Australia. And, and in that survey, we were talking to them about, you know, with inflation and with uh, the cost of living going up and everything uh, in regards to doing business seems to be getting more and more expensive. We, we asked them, is this spend on cybersecurity going to decrease? Is it going to stay the same or is it going to increase? And, and the answer is it's, it's, going, to, it's going to increase. Uh, organizations are going to continue to spend money on, on cybersecurity. In fact, through this survey, Leon, we found that four in 10 Australian leaders are saying that data protection and IT security innovation. So not only staying with the status quo, but innovating ahead of the digital transformation and hybrid work is an absolute priority for them. And this, this is especially true from the, the respondents that we, can, we got from Queensland, where 63% of them said, yep, we're going to spend at least as much, if not more, and we're going to continue to innovate. South Australia, about 58% of them said that, and in New South Wales, at least half have said we're going to spend at least a, at least a, the same or more. And, and 63% of Australian IT leaders overall expect an increase in spending on data protection. And it's so important to make sure that we're keeping this data uh, as safe as possible. And to your point just a few moments ago, the challenge is how do we do that in a world where it's becoming more complex because we have more people accessing our data and other sources of data from multiple devices, multiple places at multiple times. Would one of the issues too be that a lot of these companies need training in cybersecurity? Would that be right? Yeah, absolutely. That's what I was saying earlier. You know, the, the fact that mo most cybersecurity incidents are, are taking place from people who aren't, aren't paying attention to the work they're doing, and they click on that link that they think is a link that uh, is going to take them to an application they need to get to, or, you know, they click on a, a, a fake banking application link or something of that nature, and then next thing you know, uh, they actually have uh, a threat or, or bad actors now uh, accessing their data, their, their privacy, their, their network, their uh, information and applications. Um, so most of uh, security breaches, in fact, more than 63% of security breaches are caused from human error. So once again, we have, we have IT, IT security folks um, working really hard to make sure that um, from a, a company point of view, we have the people, the process and the tools to be safe. But it's, it's that training aspect that, that needs to continue. It's the awareness aspect that needs to continue to be pushed in every organization so that folks realize that, hey, this, this link looks suspicious or that email looks fake. Um, I better not click on that link and I better report this to my IT security group. Now, would it be true to say that the IT leaders would say inflation would increase the risk of levels of an IT threat because of reduced security readiness of organizations? Absolutely. So I think they're, what they're saying is not only that with inflation, there's there's the risk that you just associated with that. There's also this risk or perceived risk that because of inflation that they won't be spending as much money. So the bad actors are saying, okay, maybe I'll pick up the paces here and I'll actually increase the activity uh, versus decrease the activity. And that's why it was really refreshing to see the results of the survey where they came back and said, even with the rise of inflation and the rising cost of doing business, uh, we're still going to invest and we're going to increase our investment in cybersecurity to make sure that we're actually protecting our resources, protecting our people and protecting our data. Now, your experience in Citrix, is this uh, cybersecurity issue getting more pronounced? More, is, it, is, it, is it getting worse? Yeah, I, I, I don't know if it's getting worse. I don't know if I'd describe it as worse, but I'd certainly describe it as more complex. And the re reason why I, I, um, I don't think I'd describe it as worse is because for you know the last 20 years, the, as long as IT and tech have been around, there's been this, this threat, this cybersecurity threat. 
And uh, I, I, I recall, you know, just about 12 months ago, I was doing a briefing session uh, for the board of directors for a large banking and finance uh, company here in Australia. And when I was in there, they asked me to talk about tech in general, but cybersecurity was on the agenda. So it was, it was three topics that we covered is emerging tech, cybersecurity, and then talent, um, which is always a big issue as well. But when we were discussing cyber, I remember one of the non-executive directors said to me, he said, um, he said, Martin, but you just talked about all the emerging tech like AI and robotics and machine learning and all those things. He said, can't we use that stuff to get ahead of the threat? Can't we use all of this new tech that's coming out to make sure that the bad actors aren't really uh, penetrating our network and they're not getting ahead of us? And, and I sat there and I smiled at him, and the reason why I smiled, uh, Leon, is because the bad actors are – guess what? They're using that tech as well. <laughs> they're using AI, and they're using robotics, and they're using machine learning. So you know, it, it's, it's, this, it's this cat and mouse game of us trying to leapfrog one another as, as, we, uh, as we get more tools, more processes, and more systems in place, more tech in place. They're using the tech to, to do bad things while we're using the tech to try to protect ourselves. So do I think the tech or do I think the, the, the problem is worse? I think the problem is intensifying, and I think the problem is getting more complex. And the reason why it's getting more complex is because the number of devices and the number of ways that we're accessing data. So it's just more complex because of the sheer volume of things that we have to protect. Well, Martin, that's all quite illuminating. <laughs> Thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it, Leon. Take care. And now let's talk to Rabobank economist Michael Ivory. Well, Michael, uh, we've just come out of the 20th Party Congress and uh, Xi Jinping has indicated no change in the risk factors that he put me, like uh, COVID-19 and the housing policy. What's your view about that? Well, that's absolutely true on those two fronts, but I think that's actually underplaying the significance of what emerged from this Congress. Now, I'm speaking on the Friday, and we won't have the full results until the weekend, so things could still change. There's a caveat in everything I'm saying. But let's presume the rumours that we're hearing so far are accurate. What he said about COVID is important. What he said about housing is important. The key issue is who gets appointed to all the key roles going forward. Now, we know she obviously gets a third term. That in itself is already unprecedented until recently. But the people who he's promoting are either complete backers of his vision or hardcore ideologues. And the people who it's being rumoured will be stepping down for at least age-related reasons, if no others, are the ones who are regarded as being quote-unquote market-friendly or reformers, quote-unquote. In particular, it's very important that Wang Huning, who is the ideological Tsar of China, a real genuine hardcore anti-libertarian or anti-liberal neo-Marxist authoritarian and a brilliant academic, by the way. He's got very, very, very good, sound, well-argued reasons for this particular stance. You know, he isn't just some guy in a military uniform, North Korea style. He's a genuine academic and intellectual. He's, he's being tipped to run the National People's Congress, which is an enormously important position. So we have to wait and see what the final lineup looks like. But it's not just a question of the fact that the Chinese economy is unlikely to reopen anytime soon. It's not just the fact that the housing bubble, and it was always was a bubble, is not going to suddenly be the growth driver that it was before. It's the fact that China is going to continue down the path that it started on over the past few years, which so many people are still in willful denial about. So China will become more inward-looking and more nationalistic? Yeah, absolutely. Markets will be there to serve the state and the state only. So the market will only have a function, provided it produces an outcome that the state likes. And if it doesn't, the market will be co-opted or closed down. To go back to Wang Huning, who I was just talking about, he's seen as the brains behind Xi's vision. And he argues, again, 
very logically, very consistently, very carefully with a lot of historical evidence and going all the way back to Confucius and Plato and Schmidt, who is the source of Nazi jurisprudence, by the way, even though that's an uncomfortable parallel to draw, but academically he does draw on him, and says that liberalism, as we see in the West, and market forces, as we see in the West, will bring down the CCP. And he's not wrong. That's what happened to the Soviet Union. That's what happened to, to Soviet communism. You start to try and reform it. Markets always want more. They always want less regulation. They always want everything rolled back. And, they, and the presumption openly was from the Western side from day one that market forces would see a political change in China. We were never shy about saying that. And he's absolutely correct in saying if we go down that path, logically, inexorably, that's where we lead. So that will not happen now. Everything will happen on Chinese terms and on the CCP's terms. And if that means markets don't operate the way that we think they should, tough. If that means markets are closed down, tough. But we have to accept that. So it will be more closed more, from our perspective, authoritarian, more nationalistic, more Marxist, all of these things. And again, I'm not an isolated figure saying this. Kevin Rudd, who was far more warmly disposed towards China for a long time, having made the intellectual effort to learn Chinese, that tends to make you want to see the best in a country that you've put that effort into. He's saying exactly the same thing. So what does that mean for the Chinese economy moving forward? It will change. I, I don't think there's any chance it's going to get a near-term bounce. I don't even know if we're going to get accurate figures that reflect what's going on. They cancelled GDP and trade data and other numbers this week because of the Congress. If that doesn't tell you that politics trumps the economy, I don't know what does. We just won't publish the number because we've got important people meeting. Now, they say it's because they, they couldn't sign off on the data. That in itself tells you something. You had to get a Communist Party official to sign off before you could release the data to the international markets. Expect a lot more of that. We won't know exactly what's going on. But what we do know is going to be going on is trying to resolve an economy which, if you take a step back and look at it, actually looks a lot like a Western economy in the wrong ways. Massive income inequality, massive wealth inequality, massive asset bubbles, enormous private sector debt, enormous public sector debt. The only difference they have is they have too much supply of industrial goods, whereas we have too much demand. But if you invert that, you know, they're not sitting a million miles away from where we are, but they have a very different ideology on how you resolve that. We've gone down the route of QE, which we've tried. We've gone down the route of ultra low interest rates, which they're still going down the route of. That didn't work. We're having to reverse that. What will their reversal look like? Well, clearly it's going to come from a more ideological camp. And I don't think markets are going to enjoy it. How sustainable is it? Well, entirely sustainable, given that they maintain political control. If you're referring to the often drawn conclusion that the deal was, we don't have a Western democracy, we have the Chinese Communist Party system, but we provide you all with rising living standards. And that's that's the deal there. That can still be done, but it won't necessarily be done the way it's been done up until now. For example, you can look at data if you do a deep dive in China rather than doing a surface level, you know, McKinsey shallow view and say that while growth has been spectacular, it's been lopsided geographically, demographically. And actually it's three to 400 million people who have boomed and 800 to 900 million people people have been left behind. Um, you know, the data are pretty unequivocal about that, even from the Chinese side. How do you maintain growth going forward? You don't look after the 300, 400 million. You don't look after the people who send their kids to study in Australia. You don't look after the people who come on holiday to Australia. You don't look after the wealthy elite. You look after the 800 to 900 million who've been left behind, which would be entirely in keeping with Xi's philosophy. So you'd still have growth, but it's going to be much more domestically focused, much more bottom-up, grassroots-based growth, much less, let's build more 100-story skyscrapers using Aussie iron ore to, in to appeal to an international elite. And I'm not saying that's what they will do, but that's one way to square that circle. Politically, and politically, that's quite sustainable. Well, if you're pleasing 900 million people, but not pleasing 300 million people, how does that not work out? So you can't see any... Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. 
Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. The other change, you can't see this changing ever. Well, we can rule out the market-friendly, let's privatize, liberalize, and open up Western approach. And if you look at the personalities that are being lined up at the moment, I think it's safe to say we can rule that out. So if we do, what's left? You have kicking the can down the road and crisis management, Japan-style or new normal style of more and more liquidity to try and you know keep zombie firms going. But can you really keep building property and building infrastructure in an overbuilt economy to the degree which would be necessary to maintain those particular engines of growth? No, you can't. You can't keep building. You can't keep adding more unneeded apartments that are unaffordable and more unneeded infrastructure which isn't going to be used for the declining population. So therefore, logically, whether we get there quickly or slowly, you will see a shift towards this more neo-Marxian, neo-Confucian dual circulation model, which I think will shock the West. And one thing that she already said uh, during the week was the entire society needs to embrace austerity, which is not the, you know, go big, print money, build more skyscrapers model that, you know, Australia still thinks China is going to be sticking with forever. What does that mean geopolitically? Well, on one level, it means more decoupling because we see the West is decoupling in terms of technology where China wants to get to. And China is happy to remain coupled only where it has the whip hand, for example, where it is either the monopoly buyer so that it can control the market or where it's the monopoly seller where again it can control the market you'll see more of that but if you get a western reaction similar to the u.s one you will therefore see more decoupling going forward and of course china will still need certain inputs because it can't feed itself can't fuel itself so that may involve geopolitical geoeconomic realignment that can filter right the way through to the payment system the currency system the architecture of international trade all of that is potentially on the table whether it's achievable or not i don't know but in 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 theory, that's where you're heading. It certainly speaks to far more instability and far more volatility ahead. So 2022 being a template for the future rather than an aberration. But with, the, with what, Europe and the US, uh, UK sort of heading towards recession, what's that mean? Well, again, it's a mess because once you start heading towards recession, you have an impetus to try and stimulate your economy. That will happen even though we're currently raising interest rates now. In democracies, people will not just suffer through pain like that for years, which is what would be required if we were to jack up interest rates and cut government spending at the same time. But then once you start putting that new stimulus in, you want to ring fence it. You want to have made in Australia, made in America, made in Europe policies. You want to make sure the supply chains flow to you, not to other people. So you need to reorder your supply side and your demand side in tandem. Again, this is the end of a one world, you know, the lotus and the olive tree, Friedman-esque globalization. And I, I don't see how that's avoidable. So this is just very much signals the end of globalization. Well, it's not the end as in everybody building building everything for themselves and trying to feed themselves. That can't be done. But the presumption that we live in one global market happily together as consumers rather than anything else. Yes, 
that actually died quite a few years ago. But politicians and particularly, you know, vested interests who helped build that system have been very slow to realize it because they don't want to recognize they were completely wrong. And now China is showing us that. that well, China, I think, led the charge. But other powers have been doing similar things. The US is openly talking about, you know, containing China on the technological side. The Chinese economy, I think, will never overtake the US. And that was always going to be a US goal. Anyway, the, you know, the, Trump said that. Biden hasn't. But his actions speak louder than words. Europe is incredibly slow on the uptake. The UK is ripping itself apart and doesn't know where it's going. But ultimately, all of them will have to recognize this same reality and respond to it. And of course, that includes Australia. And if you want one of the big pieces of news from this week in Australia, you know, it wasn't anything the RBA said or did. It was uh, the Australians and the Japanese saying they're going to be doing joint military exercises together and integrating their army. That speaks to a global economic and geopolitical realignment on the very deepest level. Well, Michael, that's all quite illuminating. Thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. So what's happening in the news? Well, now that he owns Twitter, Elon Musk has given employees their first ultimatum. Meet his deadline to introduce paid verification on Twitter or pack up and leave. The directive is to change Twitter Blue, the company's optional US $4.99 subscription, unlocks additional features into a more expensive subscription that also verifies users. Twitter is currently planning to charge US $20 for the new Twitter Blue subscription. Under the current plan, verified users would have 90 days to subscribe or lose their blue checkmark. Employees working on the project were told on Sunday that they need to meet a deadline of November the 7th to launch the feature or they'll be fired. With the help of Tesla engineers, he has brought into Twitter as advisors. He's planning mass layoffs aimed at middle managers and engineers who haven't recently contributed to the code base. Those cuts are expected to begin this week, with managers already creating lists of employees to cut. And a startling new jump in consumer prices in Europe signals that inflation has more stubbornly burrowed its way across the continent, despite slowing growth complicating policymakers' efforts to steer economies through a difficult winter and possible recession. Consumer prices in the 19 countries that use the euro as a currency rose at a record annual rate of 10.7% in October, the European Commission reported on Monday. In September, the rate was 9.9%. Twelve months ago, it was 4.1%. More than half the Eurozone countries recorded double-digit inflation rates in the year through October, including Germany, 11.6%, the Netherlands, 16.8%, Italy, 12.8%, and Slovakia, 14.55%. In the Baltic countries, rates spilled past 21%. France showed the slowest rate of 7.1%. And the Reserve Bank of Australia has increased the cash rate target by 25 basis points to 2.85%. That's from a record low of 0.1% in May this year. It marks a seven consecutive rate hike this year and returns the cash rate to its highest level since April 2013. RBA Governor Philip Lowe revealed the bank now expected inflation to peak around 8%, above the 7.75% tipped in last week's federal budget, and more interest rate rises would be needed to stymie price rises. The RBA also cut its GDP growth forecast for 2023-24 to 1.5%. And ANZ Royal Mortgage Consumer Confidence fell 1.2 points to 79.9 this week. Consumer confidence has now dropped five straight weeks, the longest series of declines over two years since August 2020, and is now below the 2022 weekly average of 89.8. And Australian super funds are suffering as global recession fears bite. For the majority of Australians accustomed to seeing their super balance rise steadily most of the time, 2022 has been a rude shock. Those with their retirement savings in the typical balance investment option would recop returns of minus 5.7% in the past year and minus 3.1% in September alone, according to figures from super ratings. Funds have been hit by a double whammy of tumbling share markets and a poor performance in bond markets, bucking the historical pattern in which bonds have tended to perform better when equities are struggling. 
Australia's $3.3 trillion super system, one of the world's biggest pools of retirement savings, is not immune to the global market slump caused by rampant inflation, rising interest rates and the war in Ukraine. And after six months of sliding prices, it looks like the worst of the house price declines may be yet to come. Figures from analysts at CoreLogic suggest the price pattern over the year remains mixed, but on a quarterly basis it is clear that declines are kicking in most sharply in the larger capitals. Meanwhile, the black spot in the national market has moved to Brisbane, where house prices are now falling faster than Sydney, which had led the way in the recent months. Brisbane prices fell 5.4% over the past three months, Sydney fell 5.3% and Melbourne 3.1%. And forcing down gas prices through government intervention of a cap will be more effective in sending consumers cheques to help them cope with high energy costs. Treasurer Jim Chalmers said, as he opened the door to imposing a domestic price cap on gas, Dr Chalmers' preparedness to embrace direct intervention, which was likened by Santos boss Kevin Gallagher to the antics of the Argentinian government, came as political pressure over energy prices following last week's budget, which forecast massive energy rises. The budget forecast electricity prices for this financial year would increase by 20% and by 30% next year for a total of 56%. Gas prices were forecast to rise 20% for this year and 20% against next year. With Labor's election promise to lower average household energy bills by $275 a year by 2025 looking unachievable and inflation and interest rates running rampant, the government was unable to offer cost-of-living assistance in the budget for fear of making inflation worse. Last week, Dr Chalmers and ministerial colleagues Chris Bowen, Madeleine King and Ed Husick began examining options to try to force down prices without creating sovereign risk. It is understood a departmental task force has been formed. An additional $100 billion must be spent on renewable energy infrastructure for Australia to meet its 2050 net zero emissions target, according to new research, as regulators warn Australians could face higher power prices thanks to capital investments linked to decarbonising the grid. Deloitte Access Economics estimates the extra capital will be needed to invest in new wind, solar, battery and transmission assets. As the Energy Security Board determined last month, the grid required massive physical investment and wide-ranging policy reforms, which will put ongoing pressure on prices. This comes after last Tuesday's federal budget papers predicted electricity prices would rise 20% late 2022 and 30% in 2023-24, but Deloitte says it could be a lot worse if Australia fails to invest in a clean energy power grid. Gas prices, which are a key determinant for wholesale electricity prices, are also to predict to rise by more than 40% over the next two years, thanks to Russia's invasion of Ukraine having sent gas prices skyrocket. The price Australia is paying for a disorderly transition is now becoming evident, Deloitte Access Economics said. Federal Energy and Climate Change Minister Chris Bowen vowed all options would be considered to intervene in the market to lower power prices. And a Qantas pilot who advocated for gender equality at the airline is now suing the company, alleging she's been sexually harassed and discriminated against. Davida Forshaw, who's been with Qantas for 23 years and still serves as a first officer, alleges that she was sexually harassed by some of her male colleagues during her career in a claim statement she filed in federal court on Wednesday. In the court documents, Ms Forshaw alleges she was told to dye her hair and wear a push-up bra, received a poor performance rating after rejecting sexual advances and fetching pilots' coffee. Ms Forshaw also filed five complaints with Human Resources in the span of three months, alleging three senior pilots discriminated against her because of her gender. And Qantas CEO Alan Joyce's $4 million payday faces an investor backlash and possible protest vote against the airline's remuneration report and share rights at a shareholder meeting on Friday as an influential proxy firm recommended investors oppose the two items. ISS 
one of the three major proxy firms, said while it approved the CEO's participation in the long-term bonus scheme, it recommended shareholders vote against his involvement in a shorter-term executive retention scheme as the performance target set may not have been sufficiently challenging. The executive retention scheme was detailed in February following earlier commitments to offer non-executive staff 1,000 share rights in a bid to stop them leaving the airline to take up other jobs. Mr Joyce's entitlement under the program is some 698,000 shares worth about $4 million at the stock's last closing price. Among the targets in the scheme were keeping the group's net debt below a target level, cutting $1 billion of costs from the business by next June, and returning the airline to profitability by the 2023 financial year. ISS not only queried the size of the reward relative to broader market, but also accused Qantas of giving investors a false choice on the matter. The CEO's remuneration is set well above the market median and has been identified as a high concern for misalignment of pay with underlying company performance over the past three years, ISS said. Earlier this month, the airline said it would post a $1.3 billion underlying pre-tax profit in the half-year to December as a boom in travel demand lifted it from pandemic-induced nadir earlier than expected. The recovery has not come without its troubles, though, with persistent reliability troubles hounding Qantas and its competitors for much of the year. The industry is, however, slowly improving to pre-pandemic service levels, with the latest government data showing 67% of domestic flights departed on time, with 3.4% of flights cancelled in September. Yet Qantas-owned budget carrier Jetstar was unable to keep up, as engineering woes forced it to cancel one in every 10 flights that month, with just 57.5% of services departing on time. And the prospect of industry-wide strikes and small businesses being dragged into multi-employer bargaining against their will are chief among the concerns of the independents, who are demanding the government delay the passage of its industrial relations legislation and subject it to greater scrutiny. In turn, the government, while indicating a willingness to negotiate, said the Senate crossbench risks perpetuating low wages growth by insisting on delaying passage of the bill beyond the preferred deadline of December the 1st until at least February next year. There were suggestions from the crossbench that Prime Minister Anthony Albanese become involved in negotiations to help the break the rapidly looming impasse. The Prime Minister had not spoken with key Senator crossbencher David Pocock since July, when there was a row about staff allocations for independence. The government's Secure Work Better Pay Bill, an omnibus of industrial relations changes, was introduced last week and will be subject to a brief parliamentary inquiry, which must report by November the 17th, so the legislation can be passed by December the 1st. The Greens support the bill. But the government also needs a Senate vote of one of either One Nation, the Jackie Lambie Network, or Senator Pocock. One Nation opposes the bill, and on Monday, Senator Lambie echoed the concerns of Senator Pocock to centre around a revamped system of multi-employed bargaining, change rostering arrangements and adjustments to enterprise bargaining. Senator Lambie was particularly worried about unintended consequences for small business, many of which were still recovering from COVID-19. The Senate crossbenchers have a growing support of some lower house independents who, although their votes don't count, have indicated they'll bring their guns to bear to try to force a delay. Senator Pocock suggested the government split the bill so it could pass non-contentious elements before Christmas, such as making gender equity an objective of the Fair Work Act, establishing two new expert panels for the Fair Work Commission and banning pay secrecy clauses. Mr Albanese also showed little inclination for delay. And small business retailers, including independent supermarkets like IGA and spa stalls, are unlikely to return to collective agreements under the Albanese government's laws to simplify enterprise bargaining, according to employer groups. While big businesses largely welcomed the government's proposed simplification of the so-called better-off overall test for enterprise agreements and scrapping of bargaining red tape, some small businesses say the reforms are still too onerous. The concerns cast doubt that the reforms will be 
enough to kickstart the bargaining system where agreement coverage has fallen to just 10% of the private sector workforce. Master Grocers Association Chief Executive Joe De Bruyne said the government's secure job better pay bill did not go far enough to simplify the boot and argued there was no incentive for small retailers to enter a deal. IGA Spa and Foodland stores had hoped for a return to the Keating government's no disadvantage test where the overall workforce had to be better off than the award minimum rather than for every worker. And 10% of Optus Mobile customers have left the company in the wake of its massive data breach, a survey has found. As this nation's second largest telecommunications provider fights to claw back trust from its millions of customers who had their personal data stolen, the annual EFTM mobile phone survey of more than 2,000 telecommunications customers found that 56% of current Optus customers agreed they were considering changing telcos as a direct result of the Optus cyber attack, while 10% had already done so. The survey found market leader Telstra commands a 30% share of the market, a figure that climbed to 45%, including Telstra's mobile virtual network operator brands, including Aldi, Boost Mobile and Belong. Optus accounts for 24% of the market, and TPG Vodafone has a 15% share. A new study by Nordlocker, analysing ransomware incidents that affected 74 Australian companies that collectively produce more than $24 billion in annual revenue, found that Australia is ninth in the world for ransomware attacks, small businesses at the highest risk, accounting for more than two-thirds of all attacks, 59.5%. In Australia, business services is a top industry hit by ransomware, 12.5% of all attacks. This was followed by the transportation and logistics industry, 9.7%. Lockbit and Conti are the most active ransomware gangs in Australia, responsible for 16.5% and 11.4% of attacks respectively. Also, 4.2% of ransomware attacks target Australia's public sector institutions and 14.8% of ransomware attacks in Australia target companies with more than $1.48 billion in revenue. And the Victorian government has sensationally stepped in to fill the Australian diamonds funding void, left when billionaire Gina Reinhart pulled a sponsorship for the National Women's Netball Team. Premier Daniel Andrews said the deal would be worth $15 million over four years and the diamonds would wear the Visit Victoria logo. Hancock Prospecting, which was founded by Ms. Reinhardt's father, Lang Hancock, walked away from their sponsorship agreement with Netball Australia earlier this month after a player objection led by Aboriginal woman and Diamonds player Donnell Wallam. Ms. Wallam, supported by her teammates, had expressed concern about over-racist statements made by Mr. Hancock in 1984. In those comments, Mr. Hancock had advocated the sterilisation of Indigenous Australians who failed to assimilate to white Australian society. Mr. Andrews said the funding deal was a really big win for the state. Mr. Andrews said five tests would be played in Melbourne under the deal, as well as the 2023 Super Netball Grand Final. Players and coaches would also be involved in promoting the state under the agreement. Netball Australia Chief Executive Kelly Ryan said the Victorian government was one of multiple potential sponsors to reach out in the way Hancock Prospecting's withdrawal. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Andy Cunningham, Senior Regional Director for Australia and New Zealand at Autodesk, we will talk about automating industries like manufacturing and construction. And I'll be talking to KPMG economist Sarah Hunter about the RBA's latest rate hike. In the meantime, you catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongetler.com. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.